Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. So right now, joining us now is a man who was drafted by the Texas Rangers in the 1977 Major League Baseball draft. After three years in their farm system, the Rangers sent him to the New York Mets and on September 18, 1979, as part of an earlier deal in which the Mets sent Willie Montanez to the Rangers for two players to be named later. The other player the Rangers sent back to the Mets was their former first baseman, Mike Jorgensen. He made his Major League Baseball debut with the Mets on August 31, 1980 against the San Francisco Giants. After his career ended, he attended the University of Miami School of Law, graduated in 19. 19- With his law degree in hand and prior baseball experience, he was able to land management positions with the San Diego Padres and Chicago Cubs, where he eventually became the general manager. Last summer, he spent some time here on Long Island as Wally Backman's pitching coach for the Ducks. It is a pleasure to welcome back Ed Lynch to Sports Talk New York. How are you doing, Eddie? I'm doing great. Thanks, Mark. You know, first and foremost, how are you and your family doing during these trying times? Um, We're good. You know, as you know, we're in Arizona and you know, because of the, um, you know, lack of density of people and, you know, no mass transit and just not the overwhelming numbers uh, like you guys have in New York, we're, we've had a lot fewer cases and fortunately a lot less uh, fatalities uh, during this period of time than certainly New York has had. You know, this past month, um, the great sports writer Bob Nightingale of USA Today did a great piece on you. Uh, actually, it was early February, losing kind of track of time here. Um, it's actually the first time in nearly 40 years that you are not doing something baseball-related. That combined with the fact that there's no live baseball to watch, what's that been like for you? It's been difficult. I mean, you know, when you've done something uh, as long as I have in the game of baseball, not only my 40 years in the professional uh, level, but, you know, four years in college, four years in high school, Little League, the whole the whole thing. So I had basically uh, almost, you know, 55 years, you know, deeply involved in the game of baseball. So, you know, the fact that I'm not working in the game and on top of that there is no season, it's it's pretty difficult to handle. Yeah, it, it is tough. I would imagine you, you're just jonesing for that game uh, to watch. So, you know, it's interesting because few people in the game today have the experience or your expertise, expertise that you have. You've done basically everything imaginable in the game. Were you surprised with a lot of positions that opened up last off season that your phone was not ringing off the hook? Well, yes and no. I mean, these young guys that are, you know, um, running these clubs as I did when I was the general manager, they have a, you know, they have the right to run the organizations the way they, they feel they need to. And, you know, maybe my skill set doesn't match the skill set that they're looking for going forward. I, I don't begrudge them at all. I, I understand completely. I mean, I had to let some people go when I first came into positions of authority in baseball and in retrospect, a lot of those guys uh, did deserve it. So, yeah, I understand completely. It, you know, it's their game to run now. Uh, I, am I disappointed? Sure, I am. But I understand, uh, you know, they have the right to run their organization the way they feel they need to. So at what point did you feel a time that, you know, the pressure or just it was time to move on and pursue a new occupation in a different field? Well, I think after a couple of years, uh, my wife was telling me to please get out of the house. So that's when I... <laughs> You know, I came to Long Island last summer, and, uh, you know, physically I just wasn't able to handle the schedule, you know, playing, um, you know, seven days a week, throwing 
one, sometimes two groups in batting practice, you know, long bus rides. And, you know, I was the oldest guy in the league in uniform. So uh, my body just couldn't take it. So it was in my best interest and I was disappointed, but it was in my best interest to, to resign, you know, halfway through. I, I was just proud of the fact that we won the first half and guaranteed they were going to be in the playoffs. So, um, so it was about a couple of years after, uh, you know, not having an opportunity in baseball. I thought it was time to move on. It's also interesting to note that you are now a realtor, and if I'm correct, you're working for a guy who not only did you bring up to the majors for his five innings of work with the Cubs, but it's also the guy you released. Is that correct? <laughs> that is that is true, and uh, I didn't. Re- I don't remember releasing him. And you know, we were having breakfast <laughs> in the morning, and I had to. You know, I had to go back. He, he was up on the big club for you know, two and a half, three weeks, 20 years ago. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I have a good memory, but it's not that good. And, <laughs> and now, you know, I'm sitting there and, you know, we're talking and he said, Ed, I really appreciate, appreciate, you know, your professionalism when you released me. And, and I was, I was taken aback, but I didn't want to admit, I didn't remember. So I said something like, well, you know, you're always a real good pro and real professional. And I'm sitting there like the guy in the Geico commercial, you know, P, uh, Pinocchio, my nose is getting longer and longer, you know, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, yeah, we thought we had a good laugh on that one. But, uh, you know, he's done extremely well for himself. I'm very proud of what he's accomplished. You know, he's overcome cancer, and he's one of the top producing agents for Keller Williams, and I couldn't work for a better guy. So there's so many things in that article that caught my eye, one of which is you talking, and you alluded to just a little while ago, um, talking about when you became the Cubs general manager, replacing Larry Himes. You said, when you get the reins, you want to do it your way, and I did it my way. I had a vision of what I wanted to do. Certain people were very capable and productive in their positions, but didn't fit with the vision I had. So I fired some people that didn't deserve to be fired. So first off, what was your vision? When you come in as a GM, what is the vision for the Cubs at that point? Well, you know, it, it, people think you come in with a plan like, okay, we're going to be, we're going to be a, a speed defense pitching organization, or we're going to be a power organization. I mean, there aren't that many players available where you have the option to go one way or the other in your philosophy. My philosophy was always to have the best scouting department we could have, have boots on the ground watching players at the amateur level and at the professional level and try to acquire and promote the best possible baseball players, people that not only had the skill set to play, they had the physical attributes, but we wanted winning-type players. We wanted players that were tough, that knew how to play the game of baseball. And when they came to the park every day, their one goal was to win the game. Their goal was not to, you know, obviously it's an individual game. Every hitter's out there trying to get four hits every day. But really the overriding goal that we – wanted our players to have is they're going out there at, at one o'clock or seven Oh five, whatever it was to win the game. And if that means moving a runner over from second to third with nobody out in the eighth inning and you know, your batting average goes down and your OPS goes down and all that other stuff goes down. And then that one, that runner scores and when the next guy hits a sacrifice fly and you win the game, that is a successful at bat. Numbers don't measure every successful bat at that possibility. And that's, that's one of the things we tried to stress. So you mentioned having a plan or, or maybe not having a plan, but was there anything in your playing career that you picked up on in the front office that you said, I'm going to do this differently, I do not agree with that, this is not the way that I'm going to run an organization? Um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah I, I think I saw some things. I mean, I, I, it all had to do with, you know, the, the scouting part of it, acquiring players, the type of players who acquire 
um, how, how the game is taught, you know, at the minor league level. You know, I think, you know, I saw some, you know, I, we've all had bad coaches coming through, you know, our, our trip to the big leagues. And, and you know, I had, I had bad coaches just like every other player has had. And, and I didn't understand some of their philosophies. And I wanted to make sure when I hired people for player development or scouting that they, they were, you know, being positive. Again, they were teaching how to play the game and teaching players how to win the game. That was the most important thing. And try to develop players who uh, understood what the goal was every day as an organization and went out there and tried to achieve it. You know, longtime listeners uh, of this show are, are going to think that this is a direct quote from me. But these are your words from that article. The game now is getting so heavily loaded with research and development. you got to remember you have to have boots on the ground, and I think maybe they overlook that. When you're dealing with human beings, man, you can't go 100% science. You can't. They're human beings. They're unpredictable. You can't extrapolate their behavior and turn it into numbers. You just can't do it. Numbers don't measure what's in a guy's soul. Analytically, I don't know where Keith Hernandez would measure now. Did he have a launch angle? How was his exit velocity? But I'll tell you what. The man played the game with style. He played it to win. I don't believe any defensive metrics because they don't tell me about range. It takes eyeballs to measure defensive prowess, and Keith had it in spades. So my question based on that, and I agree 1,000%, and I've been an advocate for this for years. You're sitting down with an interview from me. I want to hire you as my GM. My question is, what percentage mix dollar-wise would you allocate to scouting, and what percentage would you, you know, allocate to analytics and IT? Well, I'll say one thing. I think zero analytics in our game is a, is a bigger, is as big or bigger mistake than 100% analytics. My, my point has always been you have to have a mix. I don't know what the proper percentage is, but you have to have a mix of, of players, uh, 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 evaluators, who know what it takes to be successful at the major league level. And sometimes it's hard to articulate that numerically. You know, if you look at a guy like Keith Hernandez, he was a below-average runner, probably had below-average arm strength. He had uh, he was certainly, well, back then he had average power, but he was an off-the-chart defender and an off-the-chart hitter and an off-the-chart leader. And, and so he had three pluses out of probably the six or seven categories that we look at and and numbers wouldn't identify his true strength a hundred percent. I mean, how do you put a number on a guy that comes to the park with a, with the flu? I remember one, we were in Montreal one day, Ron Darling was sick as hell, had a hundred three degree fever. He's in the training room wrapped in towels with ice, goes out, pitches seven innings. We get the win, never mentions it. Five days later, he's back out there again, never mentioned it. Now, how do you numerically put a number on that kind of toughness and that kind of unselfishness? It's impossible to do. You have to have people who are around players that watch them, especially when they're struggling. It's July. A kid's one for 12, one for 15. He's an A-ball. He's getting the bat shoved up as you know what. (laughs) And you see him out there busting his ass to be successful. Those are the type of things that I don't think numbers can – can uh, quantify or, or identify. I really don't. But there are value to numbers. Numbers don't lie in a lot of categories. They don't. And so that the analytics part of it is, is here to stay, and I agree it should be here to stay. But there has to be some sort of uh, eyeball evaluation 
based on players' experience or a scout's experience or development people's experience to, to evaluate what kind of player that's going to be when he's tired and sore, bad road trip, bad umpiring, bad weather, bad travel, whatever it is. They overcome that, and they still manage to win the game. Totally agree. And, you know, obviously we – a coach to travel, not nowhere near the same, but but you could tell what kids would react in, in certain positions just by looking at them, the way they carried themselves on a field. That I, I don't care if a kid was hitting 345, you know, he might hit 345. A bulk of those hits come early in the game when the game's not on the line, but when the game's on the line, all of a sudden that bat gets gripped tighter and it, it's not the same. And granted, you can quantify that by, you know, drilling down the numbers, but you could also tell sometimes. You, you could sometimes just in a look in a player's eyes, know know whether he's going to be able to handle certain situations or not. And, and that goes as they get older as well. So it, it's something you can catch early on. Before we move on to the ripple effect that COVID-19 is going to have on the great game of baseball, let's talk about something that really has been pushed to the back burner because, you know, spring training being closed down and now the uncertainty of when the season is going to open. We have not heard anything about the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal since all this took place. Uh, we had Brett Boone on um, one of our Facebook Live editions last week, and we asked him about it, and he gave me a, a surprising answer. And I guess after he, he said it, uh, I kind of thought, you know what, hey, that's a really good point. Brett Boone said that any team that would be out on a field would be so onto that you know, garbage can hitting so quickly that the next batter would have been drilled. He said, so he doesn't buy that this went on a full season and no one knew about it and, and people weren't being drilled. He said, listen, the conspiracy theory about the buzzers, he said, that might be something different because that's not outward and players wouldn't have been on to that. He said, but I could see when guys at the plate, you know, when they're on second base trying to steal signs, I see it. So what's your take on, on the, the Astros sign stealing scandal? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, with uh, uh, Aaron because players can't keep their mouths shut. I was a player. Everybody talks, you know, and if there's something going on, if a player goes down to the minor leagues, he's going to tell everybody in the minor leagues, hey, the guys in the big leagues are cheating. Our guy gets traded to another club. I mean, I'm not buying that it's as widespread as they're saying, but I do think it did exist. I think, I think that they were guilty. The players have even admitted as much. But, you know, back, back in the 80s, hey, we did everything we could to steal signs. You know, I think the statute of limitations is run on this, so I can make some, <laughs> some admissions here. You know, I played with some guys that were the best, you know, and we used to have a TV. I'm not going to say which city it was. We had a TV in the tunnel next to the dugout, and it had the game broadcast on. It wasn't a dedicated camera in center field. And we had a player who was one of the most highly respected players I ever played with. He could go down the tunnel with a man on second, and after three pitches, he come back and say, first sign after two, or second sign, or first sign after three. You know, and, and the runner on second base, the next time somebody got on second, they'd look in there and they'd say, okay, first sign after two, the catcher goes one, two, three, okay, here comes a slider. You know, if it was a fastball, the guy would take his lead and look straight in at the plate. If it was a breaking ball, he'd take a couple of steps off the base and look over his shoulder at the outfielders. That was breaking ball. Fastball looks straight in, breaking ball. Hey, but if you're dumb enough to have play, your sign stealable, then you get you get what you deserve. And I don't think looking at a game broadcast is is cheating. I mean, it's but if you have a dedicated camera in center field that's that's doing nothing but filming the catcher, 
and you have a guy out there with electronics relaying that into the dugout or into the clubhouse, and that's being relayed to a hitter, that's a no-no. That's going way too far. And, and, and if they're doing that, then they're guilty and they should be punished. Yeah, that's, well, they have been punished. Uh, a lot of managers lost their jobs over this. Let's talk about the effect of the pandemic on the game. There are various talks going on. Some include total realignment to reduce the amount of travel. So let's start with that. Should baseball realign for one season just for the sake of getting games in, or should they wait until they can actually you know, play the way the league alignment is? I think they ought to play as soon as possible, and I think the three ten team alignment is, is very good. I, I like that. I think it's very good. I do think, though, they need to play in their home ballparks because I've already seen high-profile players like Mike Trout and uh, players of that caliber come out and say, listen, we don't want to go to Arizona or Florida for the entire season and be away from our families, and that's reasonable. You know, that's a reasonable request, and I think if it's done correctly – with the support of the, you know, the, the medical experts and the municipalities where they play, I think it's going to be, it's a possible, it's a thing that can be done. So I think the three team, you know, the West central East, they just play within their division. You know, they start July 4th, they go through October 3rd, say that's what 13 weeks, you know, you can play between a hundred and 110 games. And to me, that's a legitimate season. My rookie year in the big leagues, we played, I think 110 games. Yeah, because of the strike, right. the strike at eighty one. One hundred and ten games is totally legit for sure. And that seems I, to, I agree. That seems I agree. Still... I think if you play fifty games, you don't have right. the opportunity to weed out the pretenders. But a hundred games, one hundred and ten games, there's no nobody pretends through one hundred and ten games. And that doesn't push it past where you would need to play in a warm location. Like if it if it's ending there, you still can play mm-hmm. in those home for the postseason. For postseason, yeah. right? Yeah, that's what it would do. Well, well I I say I would be in favor of playing, you know, extended playoffs with some neutral site consideration. I don't have a problem with that. You know, obviously football's done it. It hasn't affected uh, them. Right. <laughs> but I, I think if, you know, if they, if they want to go into October, late October, and now you're playing games in mid-November, extended playoff, the last thing you want to be is at Wrigley Field, and it's 12, you know, or it's <laughs> right. snowing. Right, exactly. Or it's raining, right. you know. And take and, from someone who played there. <laughs> it's Eddie, Eddie no, speaking from experience. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah from personal experience. Right. Trust me. So, so I, I think the, the things I'm hearing are, are, are sound. Um, the issues I see, though, are financial. I mean, the players right. are going to have to take a pay cut. You know, the TV money only pays, what, 60% of their salaries? Right. So if they, they can't go in expecting to make 100% of their salary prorated over the shortened season. So, but I think that's something they would do. Players have to be chomping at the bit. And the way salaries are now, 60% of a lot is a lot better than 100% of nothing. So, and I think the other thing uh, they can work out is, you know, revenue sharing, things of that nature, luxury tax considerations, things like that. So I think it's doable. I think the union is, is, is uh, you know, Tony Clark has done a good job. The commissioner is a brilliant guy. And, you know, brilliant minds get together, and it's, you know, it's good for everybody to get this game going again. So, uh, you know, I, I think they'll work it out, and I think it'll be a success. I really do. So all of the plans include playing to empty stadiums. As a former player, what effect on actual gameplay do you think that would have? And the only, you know, benchmark we can look to was when in, in 2016 the Orioles played the White Sox at Camden Yards to empty stadium due to the unrest that was going on in Baltimore at the time. 
Yeah, well, there's a lot of interesting dynamics. If you look at that game in, in Baltimore, it was a, I think it was under two hours. It was yep. the fastest game of the year. Why? <laughs> I have no idea. But let me tell you something. When you're playing in front of 2,000 people at Shea, and you can hear that guy in the green seat saying, yo, Eddie, you suck, you know, <laughs> that, that, that can be tough. But when there's 50,000 there, you don't hear anything. It's just like, you know, with the Jets roaring over and 50,000 people, you don't hear anything. I have trouble hearing Keith yelling at me from first base. So, in a lot of ways, playing in front of 50,000 people is easier than playing in front of nobody, you know? And it'll be an interesting dynamic. But, again, you know, players are very adaptable. They're very flexible. They're they're good on their feet. They've been, you know, one thing about athletics, it's not, you know, the movies. You don't have a script and another take or whatever. You've got – it's live. So you have to, you know, you have to think and you have to act on your feet in real time. And I think players will adapt to it. So one of the things that we have not heard or seen written about or anyone asking about is the effect that this is going to have on the minor leagues. What happens to a minor league system, one which has already come under attack from Commissioner Manford because he was looking to eliminate a bunch of teams to begin with, the economic (laughs) impact this is going to have on the minor league system, which eventually will affect players coming up. What do you see happening this year to the minors? That's a huge issue because, you know, if your second baseman and your shortstop collide and they both hurt themselves and there's no minor league games going on, you better have players, fair players, ready to play. You know, they're going to have to expand the rosters, have like taxi squads, things of that nature. But I, I think I think the I think the minor so I was a minor league director for three years. Okay, I had seven full season minor league teams, and let's face it, there's some below average operators operating minor league baseball teams. You know, when you go into scout, you go into Grand Rapids, Michigan, or you go into Cedar Rapids, Iowa, or South Bend, or Lancaster, California, or Oklahoma City. You know, especially at the lower levels, you might go in there and have twenty. Five-man roster with 24 guys you know damn well are never going to sniff the big leagues, ever. You might have that one guy and 24 supporting actors to get him there. You know, there's a lot of – I always felt there's way too many players in the minor leagues now. You know, when I, when I signed in 1977 with Texas, we had a, a rookie club in Sarasota. We had a, an A club in Asheville, North Carolina. We had a double-A team in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We had a triple-A team in Tucson, Arizona. Okay, and I was a college senior. So if I didn't make the next level the next year, I was gone. You know, now you have clubs with multiple A clubs. You know, everybody has one double A, one triple A, but they might have three A clubs, low low A, high A. They might be in the South Atlantic League and the Carolina League or the California League with two or three teams. And then at the rookie level, you'll have short seasons. Uh, you'll have rookie ball, you know. I'm all in favor of paring down the minor leagues from, say, what is it now, 160 teams to 140, say, you know, or 120. Eliminate 40 teams. Now, somebody's going to take a hit, obviously. They pay good money. I, I, my feelings, I, you know, I empathize with those people. What people pay for minor league teams these days is astronomical. But it's going to help it on several fronts. Number one, they're going to cut the season down. Instead of playing 140 games, they play 120 games. You know, so or 100, yeah, 120 games. Cut out 20 games. So during the season, you know, every operator you talk to, season ticket holders all hate Monday and Tuesday night games. <laughs> They're paying for tickets they never use. So if you have every Monday or Tuesday off, season ticket holders are happy. You can even charge them the same prices if they're paying for 140 games. <laughs> and you know what? The travel's going to get better. The uh, uh, 
Uh, the scheduling will be much better. There are some horrific schedules in minor league baseball. Let me tell you something. When you play, I remember in, in, uh, we had a team in Charleston, South Carolina, low A club, young kids. We had, we had our schedule. We had 60 days in a row. 60. Wow. There's no union down there to limit 20 <laughs> games at a time. Right. And so and their comeback was, well, we'll have rainouts. Oh, geez, that's great. You know, you, they call the game at 930 at night, and that's your day <laughs> off in those two months, you know. And then you're on a bus. So I think it'll be better it. scheduling. It'll be much better standards because you're going to eliminate a, a significant portion of teams that really don't deserve to have a, a, a professional team. And I'll say it because I'm not in the game anymore, and I don't care because it's the <laughs> truth. People in the game won't say it, and I understand why. But there are there are certain franchises in the minor leagues that don't deserve to be a professional baseball. And I, I think okay? I think because of this, a lot of them are, are going to go away due to attrition because of the economics, you know, and not going to be able to withstand this tremendous hit, you know, the operating in the ballpark and, until this. So I think we will see that reduction. And yeah, you, you can't you can't play without fans. That's the only income right. they have. Exactly. So, Ed, we appreciate your time today. Uh, we really appreciate talking baseball. It's a, a, a nice little break from the news, and uh, hope you stay healthy and hope uh, you sell a lot of houses out there in Arizona. And hope your boss doesn't any, release you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, any referrals would be greatly appreciated. <laughs> you got it. Ed Lynch, former New York man. We're going to take a quick break.